Today, Larry and his wife Judy talk about the problems of bringing up the Son of God. Howdy, folks. My name is Joseph, and I got something to tell you. I'm going to ask you something so strange you may give a start when I ask it. Here goes. What would you do if God was your son? What? You think it's blasphemy to even think about such a thing? Well, if anyone on earth said what I just said and asked the question I'd asked, I'd agree with them. But in my case, well, I'll just have to tell you the story and you make of it what you will. I'll start from the beginning. I was going to marry this woman named Mary that I'd been sweet on since I was a boy. And to my surprise, her family said yes. So I started building the house on our property, as is our custom. And when it was ready, I'd marry Mary. And that's that. However, there was a itsy-bitsy little problem that happened. She got pregnant. Obviously, I wasn't going to marry her, but I wasn't going to hurt her either. I was going to put her away quietly so she didn't have to be ashamed. Yes, I was mad at her, but I didn't want to hurt her. I'm just not made that way. Something else happened to change my mind, though. One night I had a dream that an angel of the Lord appeared to me, telling me that the child Mary was pregnant with came from the Holy Spirit of God, and she hadn't betrayed me at all. God wanted me to take Mary as my wife. It wasn't a normal-like dream. It was kind of, that was hazy, funny, fuzzy-like, but it was real, crystal clear, and, well, really real. Can't explain it, but I just knew in my heart that I was supposed to do this. So I married her. And I won't repeat everything else that happened, you know, like the birth and the cattle manger, the three kings and their gifts, the circumcision in the temple, and how we had to get out of there quick and in a hurry to Egypt. I want to talk about something else this time, so I'll repeat my question that disturbed you so much. What would you do if God was your son? Don't laugh, I'm serious. Remember that the angel of the Lord told me that the child in Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God that he was God's Messiah, or himself in the flesh. Now, I'm going to be clear about something. I'm not Jesus' biological father. It wasn't me that made Mary pregnant. It was the Holy Spirit. However, once Jesus was born, who was the one that had the job of raising Jesus, showing him how to do the stuff in the carpentry shop, sending him to the madrasa, that's our school, you know, where they learn the Torah, and generally just being a father to him? Well, it was me. So in that sense, God was my son. I understand how strange this sounds. How did I do it? How do you be a father to God? Well, I kept contact with the real father of Jesus. I'll give you an example of what this looks like on the ground. Somebody wrote the story down, so I'll go get Mary. She reads better than me. Mary, Mary, could you come read something for me, please? Okay. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days required, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. Instead, they thought that he was somewhere in the caravan. And they went a day's journey. And then they began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of all the teachers, both listening to him and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When Joseph and Mary saw him, 
they were bewildered. And Mary, his mother, said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And yet they, on their part, did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued to be subject to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Thanks, Mary. You, you read powerful good. So there you have it. You might think Mary and I was careless not looking for Jesus before we set off for home, but we just thought he was with some uncles or cousins or something. Also, from a real young age, Jesus kind of knew how to look after himself. Oh, he was all boy, playful and all, but he was never foolhardy or careless. Then Mary and I had to go through our parents' worst nightmare for three days, and I can't describe the relief when we finally found him with the teachers in the temple. So I'm going to answer my own question, because there's no way you could. I'm the only one who's ever had this honor, to be a father to Jesus. And here's what I did. Well, I just did the best I could. Rutherford and Hannah Fry look into astrology today with the help of Richard Wiseman, Joe Marchant and Alex Boxer. They react to a question sent in by Dan in Australia 
asking whether scientists think there is any truth in astrology. You can hear the full discussion in Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on BBC Sounds. Dan says, Astrology has been around for thousands of years and across many cultures in some form, so could there be something in it? Okay, well, you know what? Using my second sight powers, I think I'm sensing a hint of sarcasm in your voice here. Get thee behind me, witch! Look, astrology is not science. And it is a load of old cobblers. There is no way, and more importantly, no evidence that the positions of stars billions of miles away have the slightest impact on the fleeting lives of some bipedal shaved monkeys such as ourselves. (laughs) Yes, Okay. well, you're right, of course, because I do not believe in this either. But, you know, I'm not completely closed off to the idea that we are somehow connected to the cosmos because there are creatures on Earth whose behaviour is linked to the movement of celestial objects after all. Well, that is definitely true. I mean, there's the dung beetles that navigate by the Milky Way. But the point is that how can it be meaningful to draw lines in space between these pinpricks of light in the night sky, which are actually light years apart from each other and have no connection to each other, apart from the fact that to the ancients, they looked, well... Honestly, they look nothing like goats or crabs or fish. Those stars in those constellations are literally quadrillions of miles away from each other. Yeah, all right. What's your star sign, Adam? Well, I'm Capricorn. Mm, the know-it-all goat. What a surprise. Are you saying... <laughs> One twelfth of people are born in January. Are you saying that we are all know-it-all goats? Yes, yes, what, I am. What yes. are you then? I'm Pisces, which, by the way, I should tell you, is the same as our questioner, Dan. So that means you can't be rude about us. Mm, fishy? OK. Clearly, you're going to be no help whatsoever today, Adam. So I tell you what, I'm going to call in the big guns, by which I mean Richard Wiseman, Virgo and Professor in the Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. And he knows more than most just how popular astrology is. It's astonishing. Most people, I think, used to read their horoscopes in the newspapers. I'm sure people still look online for that sort of thing. But in some surveys, you've got 100 million Americans saying they actually read their horoscope on a daily basis and about 6 million saying they've actually paid a professional astrologer uh, to analyse their personality. So although we may think, oh, this is just a small fry, actually, it kind of isn't. See, there you go, Adam. This is a big deal regardless of whether you like it or not. And astrology is definitely having its moment. You know, this kind of alternative spirituality has not been this popular since the 1970s. Right. So what what do we know about the numbers of people who are actually signing up? Well, okay. so there's different levels of belief, so it's a bit difficult to say exactly. But a 2015 YouGov survey found that 8% of people in Britain and 14% of people in the United States believed in the predictive power of astrology. 8%? That is nearly 1 in 12? (laughs) Did you just have to work that out on your hands? Yes, I did. It's impressive. Uh, Tell you what, though, membership of the Association for Young Astrologers, that also doubled between 2018 and 2019. Doubled. How many members do they have in the first place? Because it wouldn't be that surprising if they only had one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Adam. I think I'll do the maths jokes from now on. Cheers. Um, But you know what, though? 4% of Britons say that they have acted on information in their horoscope. Whoa, really? 4%? Who are they? And what actions are they taking? Well, you know what? Funny you should ask. 
there's lots of people that really buy into this stuff, including politicians. Oh, um, really? So, yes, the Reagans famously are into astrology, and they used astrological readings to assign you know, the timings of summits and announcements and flights and on Air Force One and so on. So for some people, it's serious old business. Goodness me. Did they ever use it for anything more serious? Like, I decide to go to war because of the position of Venus in the sky? Well, I don't know. I hope not. I hope that uh, <laughs> so sort of thing was done on a little bit more rational basis. Because the thing is, I mean, who knows, because you're probably a little bit unlikely to go up in front of the media and go, you know, Venus is rising. Now it's the time for suddenly going to war. So, um, yeah, who knows? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you know what? Apparently Reagan's not the only one here. So the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, Vladimir Putin, Hitler and Actual J.P. Morgan, the founder of J.P. Morgan, are all supposed to have been very big astrology fans. Okay, I'm not sure you're making a great case. I mean, that is not the greatest list of humanity's heroes, (laughs) is it? Look, we should start at the beginning with all this, because Dan, our questioner, he did actually say this absolute bunch of codswallop must have come from somewhere. Did he actually say that, or are you slowly rewriting his question for him? Little bit. So I asked Joe Marchant, Leo and fascinated non-believer, because she's written all about our connection to the stars in her most recent book. That's The Human Cosmos, A Secret History to the Stars. And back when our learned ancestors studied the cosmos, astrology and astronomy were one and the same. For most of human history, people really wouldn't have seen them as different things at all. There's always been a belief that the earth and the sky are connected, that events that are going on sort of down here and up there are entwined. And that really made a lot of sense in early human history. The risings and settings of star constellations and their visibility through the year correlated with different seasonal events. For example, among Native American people like the Blackfoot, they correlated the rising and settings of the Pleiades star cluster, for example, with the life cycle of the bison, which they hunted. So it was absolutely sort of seeing these seasonal changes in the stars and seeing that correlate with changes down on the ground. You see that in ancient civilizations as well for the ancient Egyptians. The star Sirius heralded the flooding of the Nile, which was a hugely important event in their calendar. Their agriculture depended on it. For the Mayans, it was the planet Venus that heralded the coming of the rainy season. So this idea that the sky and the earth were entwined was really important to people in our early history and really did make a lot of sense. It does make sense, doesn't it, that the night sky was the calendar for our ancestors. So, you know, for example, when Sirius, which is the brightest star in the night sky, starts rising above the horizon in the northern hemisphere in August, it's time to move off the floodplains of the Nile. But that's the calendar. It says that August is when the Nile floods. It doesn't say that Sirius has anything to do with the Nile flooding. No, and correlation is not causation after all. But they didn't know that at the time, did they? And if you think about it, you know, the night sky, it must have been much more prominent in ancient times before we had curtains, before we had light pollution, before we had TV box sets to distract us. You know, when did you last look up and properly see the stars? The night sky must have been hugely important in people's lives. We forget now how spectacular it was. Um, For most of us, a truly dark sky is perhaps something that we just see a couple of times in our lives and it's mind-blowing. And this would have been absolutely central to their existence. Not just the spectacular sight of it with the circling constellations, you've got the dance of the sun and the moon, the wandering planets, this glittering river of the Milky Way. So that would have just been 
awe-inspiring, huge for people, but also from a practical point of view, it was absolutely entwined with their timekeeping, their navigation, their agriculture. So everything that was going on in the earth was completely entwined. You had to know what was going on in the sky. And I suppose when something is so important, that is where more fantastical meanings and invented correlations start creeping in. It's really with the ancient Babylonians where we have the first written records of people's beliefs about the sky and they really started to formalise the idea of omens and predictions in the sky about what was going to happen on Earth and they just took this absolutely to extremes. We have ancient clay tablets, compendiums of thousands of omens. So anything from changing in direction of a planet to a lunar eclipse, all these events were warnings from the gods, essentially, about what was going to happen on Earth. And so this is where the beliefs kind of depart from what we might think of as kind of true or, or scientific beliefs today. So because this was so important to them, they needed to know about these warnings so they could carry out the appropriate rituals. They had priests, kind of astronomer priests, who would be watching the sky every night and recording what they saw in these astronomical diaries. And they did that for centuries.
Helena Attlee has lived in Italy for many years and has written books about Italian gardens and citrus growing. She's also fascinated by Stradivarius violins and present-day violin making in Cremona. Michael Barclay starts by asking Helena about her book, The Land Where Lemons Grow. Helena, I mentioned your book, The Land Where Lemons Grow, and very fascinating it is too. What took you from writing about Italian gardens in general to writing about the history of citrus in particular? For years I'd been visiting 17th, 18th century gardens and seeing these extraordinary collections of enormous pots with old lemon, orange and other kinds of citrus that I didn't really recognise. Pots with trees in them that had more than one kind of fruit on, you know, maybe an orange, oranges, lemons and something stripy that looked like a hybrid between the two. And I realised that these citrus collections were the outdoor part of the collections of curiosities that well-off people used to have in their villas and palaces at that time. And so that alerted me to the idea that they had more cultural importance than simply being decorations in a garden. What perhaps kicked me into writing the book was an evening in midwinter in Genoa. It was a very mild evening because Genoa is on the Italian Riviera and so everybody was sitting outside cafes and bars drinking aperitifs and I ordered myself a Campari and orange and the waiter said, um, ah, signora, you mean a Garibaldi? (laughs) And that was the beginning of it because there was a cocktail based on um, blood orange juice that was getting its name in that one city from the fact that Garibaldi set off from there to conquer Sicily, take it off the Spanish and make it part of United Italy. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is a story that's got legs. If orange juice can take you to the unification of Italy, you know, I want to follow. I want to follow these fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Helen Attlee, as you travelled through Italy trying to find out about Lev's worthless violin, uh, you thought a lot about the value we put on things, whether it's lemons, uh, the kind of wood you might need for a violin, the instrument itself. Too often, we just worry about the financial value of an object, don't we? Yes. That whole experience came at a time when I was going through with my siblings the experience that many of us do when when our parents die and we have to decide what to keep and who's going to have what and what to give away and so on. And our house was absolutely full of things from my mother's house, things that I'd valued highly as a child, but taking out of context suddenly changed their value. And I was also aware that many of those objects had stories attached to them, which I'd been told over and over growing up. And part of the value of objects is knowing their stories and their connections. It's not, you know, whether they really are a Strad violin. It's all the things that go along with that violin. And so 
the book was also a, a journey. There was one point when I, I, I played with calling the book The Thing About Things. Um, it never would have sold, <laughs> but, but it was an investigation. What is the thing about things? What is it that makes us value one thing over another? What relationship does that have to their monetary value? Mm. You spent time in Cremona researching the master luthiers of the 17th and 18th centuries. <laughs> I think what fascinated me in Cremona, almost above all else, was the time that I spent at the school where people are still learning to make violins to the same system that Stradivari used. And I spent quite some time with these students and I found their dedication, their obsessive precision, their absolute love of process, completely engaging and intriguing. I have heard so many songs Listened to a thousand tongues But there is one that sounds above them all The Father's song, the Father's love You sung it over me and for eternity It's written on my heart Heaven's perfect melody The Creator's symphony you are singing over me The Father's song Heaven's perfect mystery The King of love has sent for me And now you're singing over me The Father's song So many songs Listen to a thousand tones But there is one That sounds above them all Sounds above them all The Father's song The Father's love You sung it over me And for eternity it's written on my heart Heaven's perfect melody The Creator's symphony You are singing over me The Father's song Heaven's perfect singing over me the Father's song 
King of love has sent for me And now you're singing over me The Father's song The Father's song, the Father's love You sung it over me and for eternity It's written on my heart It's written on my heart You sing it had an illustration in one of her sermons about a vision experienced by a village blacksmith. Once a village blacksmith had a vision. An angel of the Lord came to him and said, The Lord has sent me. The time has come for you to take your place in his kingdom. I thank God for thinking of me, said the blacksmith, but as you know, the season for sowing the crops will soon be here. The people of the village will need their ploughs repaired and their horses shod. I don't really wish to seem ungrateful, but do you think I might put off taking my place in the kingdom until I've finished? The angel looked at him in the wise and loving way of angels and smiled and then vanished. The blacksmith continued with his work and was almost finished when he heard of a neighbour who fell ill right in the middle of planting season. The next time he saw the angel, he pointed towards the barren fields. Do you think eternity can hold off a little longer? If I don't finish this job, my friend's family will suffer. Then the angel smiled and vanished. This blacksmith's friend recovered, but another's barn burned down. A third was deep in sorrow at the death of his wife, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and so on and so on. Whenever the angel reappeared, the blacksmith just spread out his hands in a gesture of resignation and compassion and drew the angel's eyes to where the suffering was. One evening, the blacksmith began to think of the angel and how he'd put him off for such a long time. He felt old, he felt tired, and he prayed, Lord, if you would like to send your angel again, I think I would like to see them now. He'd no sooner spoken than the angel stood before him. If you still want to take me, I'm now ready to take my place in the kingdom of heaven. The angel looked at the blacksmith and smiled and said, Where do you think you've been all these years? <laughs> 